0: Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And now, part two of the Ronald Agenor interview.
1: There's a unique opportunity today for a lot of players to get to the top Mm ten.
0: Because remember,
1: for the last 20 years, three players won a combined 60, what, 62 or 63 guys like
0: how is that <laughs> possible? Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right. and, and they have three different style of play. They don't play the same game at all. They have, different, right. they, have, they have developed different skills, which is confirming what I just said earlier. There's more than one way to play the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you learn? Can you serve like McEnroe? Can you hit a backhand like Jimmy Connors? No. These are special right. shots. These are, these, are, these are talents. These are special shots. T- the racket is an ins- it's like an instrument. So, so, when you're coaching those players, people sometimes, they, they say, oh, uh, <laughs> they sometimes, you know, downplay the, the coaching skills of former players. They're like, oh, no. Or maybe he was a good player, but good. you don't know if he's going to be a good coach. So, When somebody says that, and you know to be a top player, it requires so much, there's so much knowledge out there for a former tennis player to give, right? Versus a non-former tennis player. But it's up to the player that is being coached to understand that, because nowadays, everybody, as you know, is a coach.
0: Right. Those are some very insightful thoughts um, that, that really makes you have to think about the system of it all, right?
1: Yes, yes. And the system very. then there's another important factor, globalization. Just to let you know, um, when I was in France, my dad say, "You all need to go to Harry Hoffman's in uh, mm. in Sarabur." My brother was like, "Okay, Dad, why why do we need to go there?" And I, so my dad, for some reason, thought it was a good thing. Harry Hoffman was the a coach that would give you an extra edge. And guess what? My dad paid for me and my brother to go and spend two weeks at, at Harry Hobbin in Florida. I was 16 years old. That was one of the best experiences in my life. Hmm. How so? Because we learn a different way of training. Mm-hmm. And back in the days, there's only one academy in America. Today, because there was quality, there was quality. And all these former Australian players were providing amazing coaching. And their technique that they were using was very efficient. And the training program was efficient as well. And i benefited greatly from those two weeks of training at at that, at that academy back then. Now, this is like McDonald's. There's an academy at every freaking corner. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then you have the globalization. In China, 20 years ago, they were paying coaches $20,000, $30,000 a month to come in and coach over there. And after a few years, they stopped. Why? Because they got all the, they paid. They got all the knowledge. The knowledge. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now, Chinese Chinese coaches are amazing. Japanese coaches are amazing. All over Asia, you go there and you find a great coach, because they learned. They pay for it, and they're running away with it. So now you have tournaments as well, because the economy has been the strongest. In the world for many years, so they got money, they got coaches, they got facilities, and they're focused. Yes. Do, you, do you see what's that? so so mm-hmm. so so? You're and then Europeans, same thing. They've developed academies, players, and players, and players, and players, and players, and players. Ninety nine percent, ninety five percent, ninety six percent of the game is dominated by Europeans for the last 20 years. There's a reason for that. So, America has been behind for the last 20 years. Except for the Williams sisters.
0: Right. And we know what a different path they took. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yep. (laughs)
1: Uh, But, there was no... If things have done... uh, have been done the right way, you would have, you should have never been, America should have never been short of American players winning grand slams. I, I, I don't. Because, I
0: don't,
1: because all of a sudden, because all of a sudden, they don't know how to play tennis anymore. They don't know how to train. They lost their training method and try to copy other countries and all this stuff. Like, it's gone. It's gone because it's it's also a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing, also. Right. But I'm not gonna get into too much politics because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll pull that <laughs> back a little I, bit. I don't, don't want to be seen as like, hey, this guy, <laughs> this guy, look. My wife is American Been living here for 22 years. Am I happy? Mm -hmm. Halfway. Um, Do I miss Haiti? Yes. Do I miss Europe? Yes. Do I miss Africa? Yes. Fortunately, I cannot live in four places at the the same time. But uh, America has great things to offer, but there's a lot of things they need to change. Well, Ronald,
0: speaking of that, just mm -hmm. talk to us about what life has been like for you post tennis talking about again he- haitia france congo all the places that you've been your history now that you're done with tennis what is what is life like for
1: ronald agenor well th- th- i had two disappointments uh the first one was uh with haiti a country that i represented for 19 years and uh, My heart is still Haitian today. Nothing has changed. It's just I wish I'd done it differently. Um my professional career playing for France, I was offered the French citizenship that I didn't I, I didn't accept because of my situation. At 18 years old, at 17 years old, I'm winning the gold medal at the Central American Games in Cuba. And I had an amazing welcome back in Haiti with the president and everything. So I got caught into uh, a situation where I didn't realize what was going on. Um, If I were to do it again, I would think twice. Mm. The professional experience representing Haiti has been an enormous challenge. But the human experience has been absolutely amazing. <laughs> you see, um, it's a very uh, uh, difficult subject because a lot of politics are involved. Now, when you start talking about Haiti, and what's going look, if I was an NBA player, what 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 jersey am I going to wear? Chicago Bulls. There's no Haitian flag in there, right? So you're representing a team, you're representing a city. You're not representing your country. When you play tennis, you have a flag. You're representing a country. An ideology, a way of living, a culture, a language. So... I remember... When I first... um, uh, when I got to France, of course, you know, I was a big not well, 14, 15 years old. I was pretty developed, you know. They say, well, this guy, you know, in Haiti, they don't they don't got documentation about you know birth certificate all that stuff. Ronald's is he? His family say he's 15, but he's probably 18. Because I was oh. beating, I was beating everybody. Hmm. The Toronto, this guy can't be 15. It's not possible. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So. That was my encounter with dealing with the what you call racism, but it's nothing. They it just assume that you're older than what you are, right? Right. Um, when it was a big, first of all, when I played the U.S. Open in the in the in the, in the, in the juniors, so my dad was there, and they put Morocco next to my next to my name at the, at the draw of the US Open. So my dad goes and see the tournament director and they he say, Ronald is playing for Haiti. He's born in Morocco, but he's playing for Haiti. Okay, so next day, they bring somebody up to chin. Guess what they put? They put the, the French flag. <laughs> so my dad went back again. He said, look, I came already yesterday. Now I told you Ronalds." It's from Haiti, and now you're putting France after putting Morocco. So it's not only that my dad was the third time that they put the Haitian flag. Okay? Uh, because what I found out is fortunately, every time I turn on the news in America since I've been here since 1998, that's for a bad thing. Every single freaking time. There's not one time I've seen. Anything on TV that looks like, hey, maybe there's another side of Haiti that we need to show. Right. I'm not talking about today. Today the country's done. There's no more country in Haiti. The president's dead. People we don't have a government without a president. Nobody cares. You think anybody cares? And I would assume that Haiti would be being the first black republic to be independent, we get more support from America, which is about, what, an hour and a half away? Just an hour away. So when you look at Haiti today, there's no country. Of course, Haitians have done it to themselves, but Haiti was a political, has been a a political peon for Europeans, Americans, Canadians, and their international community. So when I came out in the 80s, oh, this kid's from Haiti. What? Number 80 in the world from Haiti. Holy shit. <laughs> you see, that's not the conversation. And the next thing you know, I'm beating Andre Agassi. And I'm beating all the best American players: Paul Anacone, Brad Gilbert, Todd Martin, Jimmy Connors, Andre Agassi, four times, and I name Ooh. it. So, I have beaten most of the American players of my generation.
0: I was actually going to make a comment about that, about your history. You, you really liked playing American players, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh.
1: I'll give you an example because don't forget, I grew up in Africa, lived in France, and my knowledge of the world was extensive. Mm -hmm. I At 14 years old when I got to France. You know, when, when you turn on the TV channels in France back then, there was a lot of documentaries, a lot about the history of the world. So I knew a lot. At fourteen years old, I knew who the Mossad was, the Israeli secret services. I knew everything about it. At fourteen years old, I don't know nothing about anything. Even today, you have to like if you you have three hundred channels, go and find (laughs) a channel that uh, nobody that talks about the world. So your knowledge of the word is very limited when you live in America, unless you have a will. It's not given to you. You have to go and find it. And um, so when, every time I would say I'm from Haiti, it was like a surprise, wow, how did that happen? Um, And people forget. Tennis is not exclusive to a race or culture or religion. Tennis is universal. Sport is universal. And you know what's the out of everything that I've said today? You will hopefully, there's only one thing to to remember talent is universal. Uh It's not given to one race or one culture or one religion, it's universal. Opportunities are not That's right on you know what I'm saying
0: mm-hmm
1: so so This so is the way it is so I had But some kind of way be, being from a small country it was kind of like my power because a lot of players that I played against I could tell, did he not want to lose to, against the Haitian? So <laughs> the, the, because of it is what it is. Um, and at that point, every time I would play, 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 I would feel I was always comfortable. It was my pride. It was uh, every time because it was my power as well. Because you sometimes play against a player. You forget about you forget about tennis. It, it becomes like politics. Oh my God! I don't want to lose to this guy because he's Haitian. Why? Because he's Haitian. Because he, he's poor. You're not supposed to play tennis. You don't have the money to play tennis. You don't have the money to travel. That's the cliche, right? So. Of course, when you come to America, you need a lot of money to play tennis. And I'm certain that if I've gone that route, of course, I, have ta- I had talent. After I offered me, I would have probably got a lot of sponsors if I you know, have stayed in America and stuff like that. But I chose to stay in France and I made my way up, but it was not easy. What was easy was access to tournaments. And and I'm fortunate that my brother was my coach, but I was offered to train at the French Federation, which I did for a few months. But I knew I needed to be on my own to succeed. At least Mm -hmm. to where I got. So, playing for Haiti was also a challenge because I went through many passports. Everywhere I go, I would need a visa. Mm. Um, Sometimes people say, you should not talk about this because this is... You don't want people to know that you got deported. So, there's only one country in my whole life where I was deported. And that country is Ukraine. Oh, interesting. Isn't that crazy? So, use yeah. the, the story. Uh, Like I said... With a Haitian passport, I needed a visa to go almost everywhere. Everywhere, even in Europe, because you don't have you didn't have the European Union back then, right? So I'm taking a flight with Air France, going to an, the pilots, the crew, these were people that I knew that were my friends. So I'm sitting here in the cockpit, landing at Kiev Airport, playing a it was a challenger tournament, challenger event. And I get there. I was told that I would be able to get my visa upon arrival. So I get to the customs, gave my passport, and um, the immigration said, where's your visa? I said, "Uh, well, they told me with a big smile, I said, well, they told me I could get my visa. And I said, well, what are you doing here? Remember, there's no internet back then, that was
0: 1995.
1: Okay. And I say, well, I'm playing a tennis tournament. I'm a professional player, so they there's no way they can go on Google and say who is this guy. So I said, okay, um, you have uh, where are you going, hotel and stuff like that. So I give them like the the detail sheet of the tournament, the hotel, everything is in, in there. So and next thing I know, I said, so what we need to call the tournament director to verify. We're calling the tournament director. He does not respond. That's so, true. They were already making signs with the i don't know what there was going on i say, can you please try again you try again Command so director doesn't respond to the phone call the next thing i know four ukrainian soldiers are around me and say oh, let's go and get your luggage so me i thought like oh it's cool everything is okay they got a different way to maybe I have to go in the waiting room something so I get my luggage and four other police police guys coming around me, and they talking all this thing, I don't understand anything. And I say, You're going back to Paris, because my fight was with Air Force perfect. Like, but wait a minute. What did you just say? Yeah, you're going back to Paris. Whoa. Wow. So I was escorted Four Ukrainian soldiers back on that Air France flight. It didn't last more than one hour. My friends and the pilot, because, Ronald, what did you do? I say, nothing. I don't have a visa. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I have to leave. They put me back on the same flight. I had to go to Paris, back to Paris, spend two days in Paris, go and get my visa at the Ukrainian embassy and get back on Wednesday, two days later, back on the tournament lose first round because I didn't feel like I wanted to stay. I never went back there anyways. And I had to go back. Right. So I had to go back to get my visa to play because if (laughs) I had not played, I would have got penalized by the ATP counting one tournament, zero points. Mm. Wow. So this is my career came to a cost. A human cost. Mm Mm-hmm. That was humiliating. I but did I have imagine. a choice? Did I have a choice? No. Then I went one time in the Bahamas. And, uh, no, in Bermuda. Bermuda. And that was funny. And this guy's look at my Haitian passport, he goes, what you doing here? I say, playing tennis. Oh, okay. It was a challenge. It was not a big tournament. And they thought I was getting it, coming to get a job. So they questioned me for like two hours. Wow. <laughs> so do you see the privilege other countries have in the world? Being a citizen for a certain country, when you play tennis, you got certain advantages, right?
0: right. And so, if, and that goes back to what you were saying before. If you had made the decision to play for France instead of absolutely, um, it would have been a lot easier for you. But you may not have had as much personal pride. And, but uh, in terms yeah. of the politics of things, it would have been a lot easier for you.
1: Exactly, and we wouldn't probably be talking today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs>
1: I would. I would have lived a comfortable life in France. However, um, this whole thing with... um, People don't have a freaking clue about politics in tennis. It's very complicated. It's not like when you are an athlete playing for, for NBA or football. This is a whole different, you circle the world. And I'm gonna tell you this, I think September 11th, ...has affected American tennis. You know why? Why? What other sport... ...that you travel the world from a country to, to another... ...every oh. single week? Mm-hmm. So Americans became targets. Right? And I remember Sampras after he won the U.S. Open... ...he said, he's not traveling anymore. After 9 one everybody was scared. But that's just my opinion. Wow. That's just my opinion. Well, like even you me, said... Because even me, I was scared to travel. So imagine the, the American players going out to play in Europe where they're threatening to they're threatening to kidnap you. I remember, actually, that was a funny story. Andre Agassi. Uh, I was in Belgium playing a tournament, and he canceled the trip. Everybody was waiting. He was the star of the tournament. He canceled. I think he said, uh, "He's he sent a, a note saying that uh, Belgium was uh, too close to Iraq. That was back then in Iraq. That was way before him. And he's not going to show up because it's too close to Iraq. How did that happen? So you see, and that was not even that was way before September 11th. So the fear of American players going overseas was real. Mhm. Because you, they were kidnapping Americans all over the world. The world became a dangerous place. Right. Still today.
0: So now that you've transitioned into this beautiful life with your wife and your daughters, and I think you're based in Miami, you know. You know, what, what are you doing now? You know, are you still doing things like well, tennis, I have with, been, you know, the music.
1: It has been a little bit more complicated than that. I've been, um, when I moved to, from France in 1988, I opened my academy in California, in Los Angeles, and um, I had a, a good run with my academy. However, I didn't want to stay uh, too long over there. I wanted to move back to the East Coast, so I went to Florida for, for a few months, I got, I think at that time I got five hurricanes in three months. And my wife and I said, "Okay, we're going back to California." But <laughs> it, it didn't go well. The past um, twelve years, I've been uh, kind of like more teaching than coaching, uh, privately. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any major academy going. I did travel with a few WTA or ATP players trying to make it on the tour. Uh. But I quickly found out that that the passion was not there anymore because Mm -hmm. they didn't have it. Uh, So it was more... To have players to understand what it takes to make it in tennis has been very, very challenging. And, I mean, you see it on the tour today. uh, But you see it on the tour with people that are already at the top with coaches that have already got big results. I'm talking about players that like a 800. they try to make it in tennis and you try to, to help them uh, let them know that hey, Rome was not building one day. You need to you need to work. You need to train. You need to do this. You need they don't get it. They don't get it. If they don't move from 500 to top 100 in like six months or five, five, they think other, uh, you know, your coaching is not accurate or or they blame it on another problem or they don't have enough money to do this. So it's, it has become like freaking very, this coaching, it has become a circus that is continuing. And like I said at the beginning, you have a situation where there are so many futures that players stay there for like five years. So you have coaches that have lured players to say, hey, we need to stay like as many years as you need. Because what they did is that lure players to travel in all those tournaments around the world. And they say they're professionals, but they're not making any money. And right. on top of that, they're ranked between 500 and 1,000 for the past four or five years, for five years in a row. So instead of investing in training and preparation, they go with coaches that say, hey, let's go and play 30 30 weeks out of the year or 40 weeks and travel all year round. That's how you're going to get better. No. Now, you can do that for just one year. If you do it a second year, that means you're not good. Something is wrong. So that's that coaching part. But there's another aspect is that the game has been done such a way that even like when you have a master series, if you're not top 16 in the world or something, you can't play. Right. Before you had a player that ranked 120 had had a chance to play a master series. Today you can't. You have reduced the draws. Main drawing qualifying rounds. It's bad. So some players are like top 100 in the 150. They can't make a good living out of tennis. And they can't pay for a coach full time. So. There's something wrong with the tour. And nobody's doing anything. Because they keep this. That's why. Because what they have done is focus on those three players winning 60 grand slams. And that's it. On the men's tour.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's no room for anybody else. Now, two of them are gone. Djokovic is probably going to end up with three or four more grand slams. But and when he's going to stop at the end of the day, who's next? A bunch of players. Anybody can grab a grand slam in the future if they're doing the right thing. However, players that are below 100 in the world today, they cannot make it. You
0: can't
1: make big money. Wow. You
0: cannot be so t- hmm? oh, I was going to say, um, and I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying, because we've heard this from other people as well uh, that that's the reality of the tennis circuit. You know, we've heard that basically if you're not in the top 100, mm-hmm. You're, I mean, it, it's it's tough out there for the players. They're chasing a dream that's very, very expensive it to costs, chase it with costs, no guarantees.
1: Because it costs a lot of money, and especially in America. Go and make a full schedule in America. It's going to cost you, just for the coach's expense, for a good coaching expense, going to cost you $150,000, plus the players' expenses. Wow. Who's going to pay for that? either your dad is rich or you got a sponsor or the USD is taking care of you. But with all the money that USDA has not been generating, where are the players? Right. And we've I'm had not, the I'm same not, question. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happened to the 20th? You got... Now you have... And then, in terms of like diversity, you got Chafoy. I, I saw this uh, this player. What's his name again? Eubanks.
0: Yeah, Chris. Uh huh.
1: But It's uh. To me, they could be so much better. They took all this time to just be seen out there. They should have been way better a few years ago. Taking too much time. So the situation is is very complicated because you know that Europe is, has been dominating the game for the last 25, 30 years for a reason. It costs certainly less money to travel. Uh, I was talking to a junior player the other day. They have to pay $120 or $100 every time they go to sign up for a tournament. In Europe, it costs you like thirty bucks, twenty-five bucks. Wow. You see, so to make it in America, you gotta have a really, you gotta have a structure. You gotta have, you need, but building facilities doesn't beat players. It's the quality of the coaching that you provide and the knowledge that you give that makes a difference. Of course, the but of course you need a talent. Oh, you need talent. There's a lot of talents, and some players uh, got so much money to make it. They ended up making it, but I bet you give me the same amount of money with there's way more talented players than that, and certain players, but they don't have access to that. So these future tournaments has been a disaster to the sport. Not only that. Um, I was coaching a female player and then a male player. Uh, they were both between 500 and 1000 on the ITP WTA. And when they were losing, they would show me their, the message they would get on Facebook or on Instagram or on social media. And it's like death threat threats. Like using wow. bad words, slurs. And how did you lose that? Because the future as those players are not making any that much money. But those features what should have they're not designed for you to make money. They designed for you to get match experience for a short right. period of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They they turn this and that's the ITF uh, doing this and 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 other 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 places. Uh, actually it's the ITF because they're the ones r- running those ITF tournaments. And it's disgraceful because now you have a bunch of players that are betting in those tournaments and they're threatening players. Right. And players sometimes now, they don't make enough money and they're selling their matches. How is that possible? How is that possible? So, I don't know. So, because the game is corrupted to the core. The game is corrupted. The wildcard system is a fraud. Now I'm going to speak as a... am not a player anymore, right? But right. Thought, <laughs> but but I fought I fought that all my life. Thankfully, thankfully I didn't need any walkers to, to get to 22 in the world. None. Out there with my own skills, with my family, but some players and I was fortunate. My problem was my coach for X amount of years, and I was in an environment where he didn't cost much money to access the tournaments, right? But this wildcard policy. Even today is worse than when I was playing. So let me ask you this. You have the International Tennis Federation. What does that Federation stands for? You're supposed to be international and take mm-hmm. care of the whole world because you run the Grand Slams. Right. Now Let me ask you this. And I want you to verify and I think this rule is taking place how is so when i stopped playing tennis in 1995 my dad has passed away two or three years before my mom had a liver transplant for a year so when i got when people tell me like what happened when you got to 20 22 in the world in, in 1989 and in 1990, 1990 i went to to two atp events uh when i told you there's some stupid idiots out there oh ronald you probably were partying that's why you need to make it to the top five, the top ten. I say <laughs> you are you are a very good ignorant person. Because you just assume. As people see you with your hair going all over the place, they just assume things. And I'm not gonna go into details that could that could embarrass a bunch of people today. But um you are in a situation where you have a system in place and you're trying to break the system, but by yourself, it's difficult. The only thing that now I would say this, tennis is a fair game. You know when? When you're on the court, because the ball is round for both players. No excuse. The best player will win, right? But before that, a lot of things are not equal. So. When I stopped in 1996, my ranking dropped to 790 in the world. And I met my wife. Um, uh, in 1994, she was modeling in, in Italy when I was in the semifinals of the tournament of the indoor indoor in Milan. And so we stayed friends for a couple of years and then we got together in 1996. She came from California and she said, so what are you going to do now? I said, well. I'm going to, I don't feel like playing tennis again. And uh, I was done. Disappointments or whatever it is. And she said, well, I think, I think you, you still need to play. I think you need. So I said, okay. I knew, I knew that I was not going to be the player I was. Uh, but she encouraged me to play. Actually, it's probably the only person on the planet that thought that I could, I'd still have it some kind of way. And I was like uh, 33 years old. And you know, at that time, you were really old. <laughs> so here we go. I'm playing back on the tour, 790 in the world. And this is where I realized, this is the first time I realized what it meant for me to play for hate. I tried to get wild cards at the French Open. Declined. In the qualities, not even in the main draw, the climb. Oh, wow. Oh, we're going to give the wall cards to we give priority to the French players. Okay. Didn't bother that I leave for 20 years there. Then contact Wimbledon. No response. Then I contact the U.S. Open. Uh, all war cards are going to American players. And I contact the Australian Open. All wall cards going to Australian players. So, of course, I didn't win a Grand Slam. It was not maybe top five. I didn't maybe commend the same prestige as other players. Like, Goran got a wall card. That's a good example. Goran Ibazinovich. He got a wall card at Wimbledon the year he won. Am I correct?
0: I believe so. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, but Gorin was a top five player. would be more to them. To me, he did better at Wimbledon. But at the French Open, he couldn't get even a walk card in the corner. But the message was I was too old. 33 years old. So, I decided to play again. But the reality, instead of telling me, you not... You're from Haiti, me getting the wild card. That's the message, the real message. And so I said, okay. So that's why I decided to play again. I played Futures. I played every minor league tournament you did. You know, I won many of them make a great comeback. And I played, I'll give you an example. Uh, my The Miami Open, I had to play the prequels at 34 years old. <laughs> Nine rounds, seven rounds, seven rounds in some random courts right here in Miami. Then I had to win two rounds in the qualifying rounds. By the time I got to the main draw, that was nine matches. Wow, I, I was tired.
0: Can imagine.
1: And when I get off the court, I lost my first round three in three three sets. I get off the court. Uh, I said, Ronald, we need to do a drug test. I say, great. Not only. I had to work my, my, my butt off to get all those all those rounds Now i have to do after a three-hour match because they couldn't believe a guy of that age at that time would be in that kind of shape right so the only guy doing this was jimmy carters so after two years grinding it out i'm back in the french Open in the main draw right with my own ranking, I ended up in, 1990, in 1999. Mm-hmm. I became the first player since Jimmy Connors to finish the year in the top 100 after 35. Mm-hmm. Got
0: to
1: the main row of the French Open. I, I missed the cut of the U.S. Open. I lost in the last one qualies. I didn't want to go to the. I said I did go to the Australian Open. Now the, another thing is that I went to the Australian Open when I was 500 on the ATP to take my chance to play the qualies. I didn't get in, I went all the way to Australia, didn't get in, couldn't get a walker. But every year, the cut was like very low. So I took my chance, right? Didn't get in. So, so I complained. I said, this is unfair. because the, the International Tennis Federation should give room to players like me that are representing a small country. Presenting the Caribbean, I should have an automatic spot at least in the qualities. I'm not even asking a main draw walker, right? I got the 22 in the world, and you won't give me a walker in the quads in any of the Grand Slam. That is disgraceful, yeah. That is disgraceful. But like I said, you didn't give me a walker, I went, I went again and get it myself, got in the draw myself. 2001, I'm back in the run of the French Open. How about that?
0: <laughs> but I,
1: I'm, at that point, I'm not playing my best tennis. Right. I'm just playing. Fighting. Doing something nobody else has done before. Fighting for something. Then, you realize today, you would think after quit the game in 2002. Things would be better today, even worse. They're even worse. A lot of players go faster because of the wild cards than other players. So you have, remember, you have the coaching part, you have the, all this thing that is going on, now you have the wild cards. So, history has shown wild cards sometimes, doesn't make a huge difference, but most of the time, it does. It makes the process so much faster. So think about this. The French Open has two slots every year in the main row of the French Open. Wimbledon has two slots. Australian Open, two slots. US Open has two slots. Who are they sharing those wildcards with? within themselves. So the US Open is swapping wild card with France, England, right. Australia,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So what happened to guys like me? What happened to guys like that have a pretty good ranking like that, 250, they cannot get in. You're not gonna give them a wildcard if they're from another country? Do, do you see how the system is recycling and nobody's saying anything. Nobody's saying it, that's the worst part. Nobody's saying anything. So the International Tennis Federation, I don't know why they use international. Why they use that Why they don't have a spot for certain, let's say, take Africa. Put a pre-qualifying tournament and the two finalists get a wall card, two wild cards in the quads of the French Open or the U.S. Open. Give them a chance. Right. Or even Asia. Or South America. Caribbean. Nobody's saying anything. The wall card system has been a fraud all along and it's still today it's even worse today so when you try to find out why certain certain players are not making it anymore there's a reason this tennis has become freaking more difficult than ever so if you you don't have proper guidance and proper coaching and a plan to beat the system, you done. But some found a way to beat the system. Why? Because they also have superior tennis. Right. When you have superior tennis, you can bypass a lot of those things. But some players, they don't have superior tennis, but they can get to superior tennis. But they can't do it because in between, there's so many roadblocks.
0: Right. Well, and you have to remember, too, at the end of the day, the the tennis tours are a business, right? So they're going to make decisions that are the best business decisions for them, best financial decisions for them, versus being these organizations where they're looking to, you know, make sure that there's equality or equal opportunity. Okay. The, the,
1: I agree with you. How do how how do you make this equality when management companies owns half of, they own half of the tournaments?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have manager coaches own the tournament. How is that possible? Yeah. This has become a private company. mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: So you get hired, or you get pushed back. See
0: what I'm saying? Right. Oh, I tell you what, this has been such an insightful and deep and good conversation. I know our listeners are going to really uh, enjoy hearing mm-hmm. an, a different perspective, you know, on you know the tennis system. We'll call it. Because you know? they,
1: they don't know. They, no. They, they don't put this this behind. I would say behind the best line, okay. they don't, they don't know. They just read things. They, and, and people don't have the patience today. They just read things. They go to their social media. They go ah, it's, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it's a show. It's right. a show. So you have to go into research to find out some good contents and, uh, people that can listen to the people. And then, wow, you're actually going to help them make better decisions.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and Ronald, like Bryce said, this has been such an insightful discussion and we appreciate all of the great words and the perspective that you shared. Any final words, uh, before we go ahead and wrap up here?
1: Despite, uh, all this politics and all these hurdles and all this and this and this and at the end of the day, tennis is a, absolutely amazing sport and i'm 58 every time i step on the court other for coaching or just playing for myself uh it's pure joy because you know what when i get on the court when i close the door all the issues that you might have all the bad things that you might going through whatever they're gonna stay right there at the door. When you close the door to get on that court, tennis becomes the tennis court becomes the place of paradise. So, people that love the game, they need to continue playing as long as they can because that's one beautiful sport. As a matter of fact, I found a new life in playing, I continue playing and coaching. Uh, I'm playing with old rackets that are all as old as me (laughs) and and i get um this is like music you like to hear i like to hear music on vinyls right because this is where you had a connection you know you get an lp you get the album you take out you get the lyrics you get the story you get the pictures you get this big thing and you get the beautiful sound tennis records is the same and one thing i will say the the um Tennis today, of course, they got some exceptional players or whatever, but uh, we need to see a little more finesse, which is very difficult when you're playing with rackets that are and strings that are so hard, they are like boards, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so when I see Alcaraz play, I'm like, hey, he's playing back in the days in his own way. But he has a style of play that reminds me of players back in the days, and that's uh that's something I really enjoy enjoy watching so hopefully that'll inspire more players to to be more creative and take tennis as a as an as an art because that's what he was and his still should be today
0: uh beautiful words beautiful mm-hmm. words it, well i tell you what this has been an amazing conversation and honestly we can't wait to meet you in person one day sure. we'll have to catch you at i don't know the us open or we're got, <laughs> we're, we're coming down to the miami open next year so if you're hopefully
1: if, if i'm still around uh, in florida um however <laughs> pe- people can still connect with me uh, uh with music because uh, as you know i've been uh playing guitar since i'm 15 i've been traveling with my guitar all over the tournaments I would play so I missed a flight one day because I was playing guitar and forgot my, my flight was was, <laughs> was uh but um, um people can check out on my website Ronald, as you know, com they can go through a bunch of videos pictures and also listen to uh to my last album is called called the V but you got it's like strings of life so I'm telling you a few stories some a few songs are in French, few songs are in in, in English, and um, this is also a way for me to express myself and to stay connected.
0: Well, we're gonna have to get you and Isaac together because sure. I don't know if you know or not, but Isaac is an incredible singer, wow. and uh, so y'all share that love of music. <laughs> oh, oh yes, <laughs> uh,
1: probably we should absolutely. A, 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 a music subject. I would love to uh, connect with fellow musicians because there's. Uh, this is also uh, ultimate art, and it's also great to discuss music.
0: That's right. Would love that. Yep. Well, thank you once again, and uh, family. This has been Ronald Agenor, live, uncut, unfiltered <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for your My, listening yeah. pleasure.
1: <laughs> and and please send me your address. I'll I'll send I'll send you guys a CD. Oh, awesome! Perfect.
0: Awesome. So, awesome and if you can hold on the line for just a second we're going to close this up Um, thanks for listening we have more great interviews coming for you in the upcoming weeks and uh, as always stay safe stay healthy and on behalf of the podcast this has been your boy Bryce and this is your boy Isaac and we are brothers on tennis everyone stay safe